This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, this is the first launch of our Season 2, WealthFest, the weekly Bull and Bear. As per usual, I'll start with some of the numbers of today. Uh, we're recording this at the end of this podcast, at the end of Monday. So if you're looking at your screens uh, today, you could see we once again broke records. So the Dow closed the day at 2790, um, which was up 132 points or 0.49%. S&P 500, we passed the threshold of 3000. We're at 3039, which is up a little over a half a basis point, point or a little over 0.56%. Uh, uh, VIX, we saw the day end at 1311. So volatility was a little bit, but, you know, year to date, we've seen volatility drop by 48%. And uh, lastly, we saw the 10-year Treasury end the day at 1.844%, so up a little bit there. Um, so, I mean, there's a confluence of, you know, factors for this. The S&P's gained about 2.5% in October. Uh, I'll let Grant talk a little bit about what might be driving shares uh, the way they are currently. Well, I think as we end the Q3 earning season, we saw strong earnings. AT&T beat earnings, and we saw their stock rose about 5%. If we also look at Tiffany's, their stock just rose 25% as they just got a takeover bid from the French company LVMH. I think people are starting to feel a little bit better about trade talks as President Trump signals that they're better than expected, especially with phase one starting to help farmers and businesses that have been impacted. Best Buy shares have been really volatile with all the trade talks and we just saw over a one percent increase there and then also i think a big one if we talk about the tech sector is microsoft just got the uh, the pentagon cloud deal beating amazon for 10 billion so i think that that's a big driver as well yeah i, th- I think when we're looking at the confluence of factors right there's really three big things the first of which is the easing of trading tensions which you just mentioned uh, second being that earnings have been largely positive and lastly, we believe that the Fed will be uh, continue to be accommodating. Um, let, let's get in right into the Fed. So, I mean, Goldman Sachs predicts that the Fed's going to make two big changes. So, um, you know, during the Federal Open Market Committee, which is going to take place actually tomorrow through the 30th, um, they'll be meeting to target the range of the Fed funds rate. We're expecting, and Goldman gives this uh, a 95% probability of a cut from uh, 175 to 1.5. So that's the first thing that Goldman expects. Uh, But also, we might be looking at um, changing some of the language, finessing some of the language, you know, as we've seen over the last several, several months and and, and quarters, um, Jerome Powell has said we'll act as appropriately. Uh, Goldman has some analysis specifically saying that the sentence might be replaced with something that references uh, will act as needed to promote our objectives. So a little bit of finessing the language. Uh, personally, I don't know whether that is hawkish or not. Uh, I think a lot of the job owning is quite frankly confusing. But what's your take on Fed's cutting rates? And, and if you have a take on, if any, of about finessing some of the language? Well, I think we're definitely going to see a rate cut here, rate cut here about 25 basis points, uh, and then that will also signal that there may be more on the future of next year. I think one of the big things that he, with the language here is 
he's trying to adjust the central bank's view to a mid-cycle. So that's where a lot of the language will come in to, to ease consumers. Uh, I also think that Powell has signaled also that they're going to be to begin growing their balance sheet. So maybe a little quantitative easing, which is helping investors feel a little safer about the current economy as well, uh, especially now with, with trade tensions starting to be a little easier. Yeah, I, I think if there's anything that can really put a stop to the stock market rebound is if is if the Fed does decide that it makes sense to be a little bit less accommodating based on a lot of the fundamentals we've we've mentioned. And then I think we can see somewhat of a revision um, as happened, you know, last year when that played out. Um, we should talk about I mean, we're right in the heart of earnings season and banks in particular have launched a lot of their earnings. Uh, J.P. Morgan, their quarterly earnings were um, did very well. So they took in a record of $29.3 billion in the third quarter. They earned $2.68 per share. And so they beat analyst expectations of $0.23 uh, cents per share. Uh, however, we've seen a couple things. Jamie Dimon a few months ago said, you know, there might not be necessarily anything that he can see really changing the trajectory of our economy for the next several years. Uh, recently, when he was talking to analysts, he said, of course, there might be an, there's a recession ahead. Uh, what we don't know is um, if it's going to happen soon. So he was a little bit more tepid. Um, and as good as J.P. Morgan's uh, earnings were, and they were great, um, you know, Goldman Sachs and, and Citigroup and Wells Fargo had put up some less rosy numbers. So, um, you know, that's really, I think that's something to look at. Yeah, well, if you look at what Goldman Sachs chief executive Damon Solomon said, you know, the IPO business is definitely slowed. So that's definitely starting to to affect them when we see Uber having a disappointing, disappointing IPO, as well as WeWork having, you know, a botched IPO really for it. Uh, so I think that that's definitely starting to starting to become apparent. Also, Wells Fargo still has the constraint on their balance sheet, so that may be impacting their growth as well. You know, Citi's an interesting one because they have such a global footprint, and I think that they've been they've been affected by the slowdown in trade as a lot of their customers have paused to maybe build out facilities or, or enter new markets. And I also think that if we're thinking about bank profits, if the, Red continue, if the Fed continues to cut interest rates, that's going to erode profit margins. So I think that we may, be, we may see a little decrease in earnings moving forward as well. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of profit margins, you saw Gallagher uh, of SG, and he's been really the guy to look to when we're talking about economists who are kind of on point for predictions um, whether that be, you know, retail or ISMs, there's a confluence of factors that he's called right. Uh, his recession story is kind of simple. I mean, he says that U.S. recessions are typically born out of an erosion in profit margins. Um, and, and, and we've seen that right now, right? So profit margins for U.S. non-financial corporations peaked in 2015. They were at 5.2% of gross value added. Uh, and then in the latest quarter, they fall into 10.9%. So, I mean, conceptually, right, like since companies don't really have much pricing power, the way managers can defend their margins is they turn defensive. Um, you know, that results into cost cutting instead of growth. Uh, and then you see kind of a decline on, you know, in their investments and, and, and throughout their payrolls. So I think that 
although it's not talked about much um, in our economy, like fundamentals are certainly strong. This could be one thing that 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 is a that's a headwind. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and it makes a lot of sense because when companies' margins are fat, they're able to roll with with the punches and and not have to make quick decisions. Whereas once the margins begin to thin, that's when we see managers start to start to cut costs. Um, one of the interesting things I also think is one ways that corporations can avoid the narrowing margins is actually invest in you know technology that is going to enhance productivity, and and that's just not happening. You know, there are a lot of investments in R&D and software, but not the capital spending on structures that will uh, that will really improve productivity. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of what's driven a lot of the earnings per share um, recently, it's there's obviously been a lot of talk about buybacks. So, I mean, last year, for example, I mean, 30% of cash spent by S&P 500 companies was used to repurchase stock, and that... Last year was a record, right? There's $800 billion in uh, stock buybacks. But now in the future, uh, because of a little bit of declining confidence, that could be result in a drop. So Goldman Sachs has analyzed that you know buybacks can fall 15% um, this year, and then that would mean it'd be around $700 billion. And then 2020, maybe another 5%. So total buybacks will be sitting at you know $675 billion. So... That might have, if there's anything that you know can kind of cause a little bit of a of a correction in terms of um, how frothy pricing might be. Uh, I think declining buybacks certainly might be one of those things. Yeah, Duke did a quarterly survey of CFOs who showed a decrease in confidence, and so I think that if the CFOs ha- have a decrease, then companies may hold back on spending and buying shares. Maybe that, so that may create a, a little bit of a bumpy stock trading with market swings. Um, and I think one of the things to, to really look at when you're thinking about buying back shares, this is a, a tool to signal profitability, right? Because if you're looking at a key metrics earning per share, if there are less out shares outstanding due from all the buybacks and earnings stay the same, therefore you're going to have the same earnings with fewer shares. So this will actually increase showing a positive signal to the market of, of the amount of earnings per share. So I think that moving forward, if we're going to see less buybacks, this may, this may signal uh, a little less profitability, which may have an impact on, on the market. Yeah, and I mean, we're, there's a lot of people who, when they want to talk about buybacks, they say, hey, look, it alters the fundamentals, right? So, I mean, in 2016, we saw earnings per share rise at 1.3%. Um, but net income that year dropped uh, across the S&P 500 by 1.8%. So buybacks can be seen as a way to, you know, add a little bit of froth. I also think that we've seen corporate buyers jump into the market when they see their stocks start to decrease to try and stabilize and support it. And so if we actually are going to start decreasing the number of buybacks, this may cause a little volatility on stock prices. Yeah, definitely. And um, it might be interesting to see what companies decide to do with their dividends too, right? Because we've seen dividend payout ratios go up a little bit. Um, one point, you know, we were talking about a couple weeks back about the inverted yield. We actually saw dividends paying more than several treasuries. So if, if they're about as high as they can get, then maybe we see a decline in dividend payout ratios as well. Definitely. And now without the, the, the tax rate that companies use a lot to 
the tax cut last year used to do a lot of these buybacks, that's no longer really pertinent. So we'll see if that also affects it as well. Yes, one thing we should bring up is uh, IPOs. Um, interesting thing about IPOs is, uh, I mean, I, a few years ago I was tracking Renaissance Capital, you know, pretty pretty regularly, and IPOs are sexy, IPOs are exciting, <laughs> but um, I mean, this year there's certainly certainly been a lot of anger between you know Silicon Valley and and how they perceive their investment banks in in New York, um, largely because. You know the insiders. So you're talking about founders and the employees and, and and private equity guys. They have you know the lock periods, right? So they can range from 90 days to 180 days, and then when the lock period is over, what you see is a flood of selling, which really weighs on on IPOs that might already be struggling. Um, and that's why a lot of people are clamoring for direct listings. I, I know this has been a big problem with Uber this year. Uh, what insight might we have on why IPOs have, have done so poorly and why there is such a robust push to go the direct listing route as opposed to, um, you know, the traditional IPO and underwriting route? Well, I think there's a one of the big things to think about is some of the early investors are some of the venture capitals who are looking to make a return on their initial investment. So once their shares are not locked, they're going to be looking to sell that at any price really to get that return on investment. So they'll they'll sell even at a at a decreased price from the IPO original listing. So I think that that's a that's a big thing to look at. And if you look at some of the IPOs this year, Zoom, Beyond Meats, and Pinterest, they all have increased since their IPO price. But now with the founders trying to get a little payday and flooding the market with their shares, this could actually cause a drag on, on the share. I also think if you if you look at Uber, who's already decreased significantly, about 35% since their IPO, you know, once they once they flood more shares, I think I think that, that could have a drastic impact if we look to look to Lyft, who after after the lock-in period, their shares went down by about 40%. Yeah, and I mean, when we look at the reason why, why, why to have an IPO in the first place is really if you're thinking, you know, you might have an issue getting on exchange in the first place, right? Because, I mean, you're giving, you're giving a markup to the investment bank. Um, you've got a lock period. So there's a lot of costs associated with that. But for a lot of these big tech companies, I don't think the major pro, which is, you know, having an IPO is necessary because, I mean, they're going to find their way on exchange anyway, right? Right. Well, I think that the another example of a direct trade uh, going direct is is Spotify, who had a pretty successful launch, and I think that this is one of the reasons why we're having having this conversation right now is because they successfully did a direct listing, and so it'll be interesting to see as we move into 2020 to see if uh, other technology firms follow this precedent that Spotify did. Yeah, so we'll get into on this kind of second back end of this. We're going to be talking about global growth. We're going to be talking about um, Mario Draghi stepping down and Christine Lagarde taking over. I will also be kind of touching base before that on inflation as a metric and how economists consistently miss recessions. But before that, I would like to plug our uh, Wealthfest webinar that's coming up. And Functionally, we just learned that there's over 600 million business professionals on LinkedIn, and we have a webinar that's covering how financial professionals can use LinkedIn to grow their business.
Yeah, but if you're like me, you don't really have time for LinkedIn. Yeah, and well, I mean, I guess we're all in the same boat. Um, I do have a couple more connections than you, so maybe I have more time where I'm just a better networker. But anyway, our, our webinar for that reason is called How to Spend Five Minutes a Day Growing Your Business with LinkedIn. Um, it's perfect for busy people, and like I said, it takes five minutes. You know, five minutes actually doesn't really sound that bad, but is there anything else I can learn from this webinar? Yeah, so the webinar will also be teaching you how to set up your profile to attract businesses. Um, it will kind of go over three tasks you can do every day in five minutes to grow your practice. And lastly, really how to engage with your prospective clients. That sounds pretty useful. Maybe I can get as many connections as you. How do I sign up? Yeah, so we're, we're going to be doing this on Wednesday, November 6th. It'll be from 4 to 4.30 Eastern time. We will put a registration link in our show notes. And, and uh, you know, uh, and you can just go to pages.wealthfest.com, WVSM1021 to register or find out the link in our notes. And with that, let's move on to the global economy. So the IMF has recently said that its latest World Economic Outlook projections show that 2019 GDP growth will be at 3%. So that's going to be down from 3.2% in the July forecast. I mean, they've mentioned things that we've, you know, reoccurring issues such as trade friction. But, um, you know, there's also been some emerging economies who are really struggling with uh, different IMF mandated austerity programs as well in some of the frontier markets. So those are kind of two big catalysts for um, what might be a slowdown, uh, although the fund was a little bit more optimistic about global growth in 2020, um, saying that it could pick up to 3.4 percent um, because expectations of Countries like Brazil, Mexico, Russia, China, and, and, and Turkey are a little bit better. Uh, Grant, where do we think global growth is, and, um, and what should we be looking at? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the, IF, the IMF has definitely come to the conclusion that a lot of people are thinking about, that the overall global economy is slowing. You know, we've talked about numerous times the, the trade war between China and the U.S., also, we're, we're still looking for a, a Brexit. I know it just got pushed back to January 1st now, um, but that's also going to be interesting to see how that shakes up. And then we also have seen, you know, a couple weeks ago that the U.S. won the, the Boeing and the Airbus to be able to in, increase the tariffs on, on the EU. So I think that that's definitely something to look at. And then also, if we look at the second largest economy in China, that's also beginning to slow down as they're going to have to start looking for drivers other than technology and, and really have to combat, you know, globalization and, and everything like that. Yeah, and, and there's there's definitely seemed to be a major slowdown in, in India as well, which is uh, not an unimportant um, factor. I mean, you're looking at in a country of, you know, 1.3 billion people. Um, who's also, you know, put up, you know, exemplary growth numbers over the last couple of decades as, as China has. So any slowdown in India will likely occur, you know, and, and definitely, definitely weaken, um, Southeast Asia and some of the, some of their peripheral countries, you know, whether, um, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, and big trading partners as well. So, so that's something to look at. Uh, but <laughs> despite, you know, declining growth, um, and despite, you know, all these predictions, one thing that's kind of been a standard is that inflation has increasingly been losing its 
real meaning as an economic measure. Um, so, I mean, what we've seen is right now the IMF is counting among its members 41 countries um, in which the monetary target is targeting inflation. And of all these, you know, we have 28 will undershoot their inflation targets in 2019 or have inflation at kind of the bottom half of their target range. I mean, and this is despite, right, a world that is offset by we've got trade wars, we've got countries racking up huge amounts of debt, and then we also have record low unemployment. Um, and yet we're not really seeing any inflation. Uh, and there's been, a, this isn't the only cycle we've seen like this. There's been, you know, handfuls of cycles we've seen like this in recent history. So should we still be looking at inflation as we have in the past? Uh, I mean, um, I mean, certainly, you know, during the Reagan eras, that was the big fear. I mean, there's several economies around the world where inflation is still definitely the boogeyman. But I mean, don't we think that as an economic indicator, it's really lost a lot of its luster? I think so. I think that just as you signaled that the inflation target has not been hit or, or is on the lower range of, of inflation targets throughout most of the developed countries, I think that this is just signaling that the, the central bank has been wrong on their on their policies on how to keep inflation right around the, the benchmark that they have. I, I think that if we're thinking about indicators, the, the big one that keeps on getting talked about is the inverted yield curve, and more and more you hear less about inflation. Right. And, and the other thing about the inverted yield curve, too, is while it has been a predictor of, of, of recessions, those have occurred anywhere between 6 and 22 months. So, you know, whether it's a half a year or two years is, is, is not an insignificant gap, right? So, I mean, that's, that's another problem. But it kind of gets into this overarching issue, which is that economists have consistently uh, missed recessions. So, I mean, there was a 2018 study done by a handful of economists, and they're looking at the last recessions, the last 153 recessions, in fact. Um, this represents 63 different countries uh, between the years of 1992 and 2014. And what we found is the vast majority were missed whether we're talking about the government or whether we're talking about uh, the private sector. And, I mean, when we look back at 2018, uh, that wasn't, or sorry, 2008, that wasn't officially declared a recession until one year. So there's a couple reasons for this, but I think one of the big takeaways of this study, and we'll include this in the, in the notes, is that it used to be that economists didn't want to be the little boy who cried wolf, right? So there was a huge just kind of social stigma around that that seems to be declining a bit because we have economists who are uh, who are more comfortable playing chick- chicken little and, and and you know talking about the sky is falling. But I mean, in terms of the stigma, that's one part of it. But then, I mean, I guess a lot of the other parts is the confluence of data is just so difficult to read. Like you know, we just mentioned that inverted yield curve, you can have a recession in, in half a year, but it can be about two years as well. So those that's my take on the study. Yeah, I think a, a big piece that they pointed out in the study is that, you know, forecasters are sometimes too sunny and optimistic about economic growth. And I think that that may be maybe something that, that we see right now with, with current trade tensions and, and everything going on in, uh, in Hong Kong and China and everything like that. And so I think that People always are, are, are trying to look for 
for economic growth where sometimes it, it might not be there. So there's a, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of different indicators and I think people are able to craft a story based on choosing certain indicators to point to economic growth. And I think you made a good point, you know, they're, they're paid to be right. And so if they're wrong on a, on a recession, that's a pretty big miss. And we should mention, we're also kind of losing a standard bear here uh, this week. Mario Draghi, will be stepping down. Christine Lagarde is taking place as the head of the ECB on November 1st. So kind of last big talking points of the call. Uh, I guess, you know, what I'll say about Mario Draghi is, you know, 2012, he really took over in the depth of the crisis um, and was widely credited in saving the euro. Um, But... But, I mean, there is to be said he's kind of leasing on less of a rosy note. Um, Kind of the Central European economies are certainly uh, kind of frustrated with with some of the negative yields, especially some of the big saving uh, countries. But then also there's been countries who have a very, very strong view on inflation, uh, Germany being one of them, very conservative, very old school, in fact, the ECB was really started on, was based on the Bundestag, right? So Germany's central bank and containing inflation was a central part of it. But, um, you know, Mario Draghi's had less conservative views on this. And, and, and also countries are also, you know, definitely frustrated that with such low interest rates, it's it might be once again easier for some of the southern European economies to take uh take up debt and and they're less incentivized to actually take some of their austerity plans seriously. So, I mean, at one point, you know, he's definitely seen as an icon, but I think he's kind of leaving in somewhat of a mixed bag. Yeah. And I think that some of his legacy may be tied to this. We'll see how it, how it plays out and see as the, as the new doctor comes in to, to, to see if she can help mend this and and you're seeing a lot of contrast between what the north and what the south wants and i think that that's going to cause some turmoil here as especially as she starts her her new job yeah and i guess to end the call and talk about what we'll be looking forward to this next week um you know we we had a we've had a lot of stuff and we didn't really have time to talk about today but in terms of the political cycle but i mean uh, one, we've had great economic data, which we certainly alluded to. But then, um, you know, we had a uh, head of ISIS uh, was 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 killed last night in a special operations raid. So, in terms of what's going on, the political dynamics, I do think the president's going to see um, quite a bit of a boost, whether it's you know temporary or whether it's um, kind of longer term remains to be seen. But that's definitely going to affect how impeachment uh, proceedings are going and and also how the Democrats will be campaigning and uh, positioning themselves and, and, and such forth. Yeah, I'm interested to see how everything shapes out with Boeing this week. I know that they're testifying in front of Congress. Um, we just saw that Google came out and said that their profits fell sharply based on R&D spending. So we'll be, be continuing to see how the Q3 earnings come out. Um, I also think that, you know, we're continuing to follow the Brexit negotiations as well as the trade war, which, you know, I feel like a broken record, but those are definitely things that we should definitely keep an eye on. 
Um, and then also, I think, you know, this Saudi Arabia oil IPO is something that we should definitely continue to to watch because there seems to be shake up there with with the security of their plants and that they may just go directly on the uh, on the Saudi exchange. And then um, lastly, I think we'll we'll continue to see how the impeachment impeachment hearings. I think they announced today that the the first public hearing will be in November, so that will definitely have an impact um, on on the U.S. economy outlook for 2020. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning into our first episode of season two, and uh, we'll catch you all next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts, and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wealthfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.